0: Hey everyone, welcome to Way of Life podcast, where we firmly believe that everyone picks a way in life and what way you pick is extremely important and directly affects how you live. In this podcast, we seek to interview people from all around Australia and beyond on life's most important topics. Whether you're a Christian, a skeptic, or someone with a whole heap of questions, this podcast is for you. My name is Matt, a pastor living in Brisbane, Australia. This is Way of Life Podcast. Good evening, everyone, uh, here in person or online. It's awesome to have you here tonight for another podcast. So, got a very special guest for tonight. Uh, His name is Dan Anderson. So he is the director of the Lachlan Macquarie Institute, LMI, uh, which is based in Canberra in Australia. Uh, So LMI's mission, as far as I'm aware of it, is to raise up an Australian network of wise Christian leaders for politics and culture who are biblically faithful, culturally intelligent, and positively engaged for the common good. So Dan, uh, he's a smart boy. He uh, holds a PhD um, from Macquarie University, exploring the philosoph- uh, sorry, philosophical ethics of forgiveness, uh, some of which which we're going to uh, talk about tonight. Um, so, Dan, it's awesome to have you here tonight. Thanks for taking uh, some time out of your
1: schedule. Yeah, no, it's a great privilege to be with you, Matt. I'm really looking forward to it.
0: Yeah. So, Dan, how are you going? I thought I'd start off with something light-hearted before we get into the ethics and things like that. So, how are you going? How's Canberra? But you live a little bit outside of
1: Canberra, I'm hearing. Yeah, we, we live in a beautiful country area outside of Canberra. If I, if I had a kind of roving camera, I could show you where I'm sitting. We look. I'm looking out over the paddocks down towards a beautiful lake. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a lovely spot to be. Um it's pretty cold and, and pretty wet here at the moment. Spring it, spring is starting, but it takes a while to get going in Canberra. So <laughs> it's the temperature last night was about five degrees and kind Ooh. of hit maybe a top of 15 or 16 today. So so pretty chilly. It's fresh. But, uh, yeah, yeah, But all the flowers are coming out. And it's. Uh, I was doing a bit of work around the property yesterday, which was lovely. So. Oh,
0: that's yeah. nice. So do you live like where LMI is?
1: Yeah, we, we have a, a beautiful property. Um, that's about 20 acres uh, that was originally built as a, as a bed and breakfast. Uh, and then LMI bought it uh, about six years ago. And we've done a bunch of work building on here as well. So now we have uh, a, a homestead with with a dining room and classrooms and some accommodation and a, a lecture theater and offices and things like that. And there's also a house on the property where we live as well. So the way that LMI works, is that we we bring people uh, to come and live on site here for three months. Mm. And we fly in a whole bunch of professors and lecturers and leaders from around the country uh, to run seminars. And so you kind of, you live here with the people that you're studying with and with your lecturers. Um, and yeah, that, that goes for three months. And then you do a parliamentary internship in Canberra working in Parliament House for a little bit. Um, so it's a right. range of experiences and community and a whole bunch of things, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. How long have you been uh, directing that for?
1: Uh, a bit under two years, uh, so I started in, in January 2021. Yeah, cool, enjoying it? Yeah, it's it's an amazing opportunity. Um, I think uh, the the chance to actually do this kind of discipleship where we spend like a significant amount of time with each other, thinking about the Bible, thinking about the culture, how to shape habits uh, mm. and discipleship together is, is really amazing. Um, where we've got a a really excellent facility and a really great network network of people who are involved. So I love that. I love the the diversity of what I get to do. So I teach in the program, Um, I I help to run this and and, uh, and also organize programs for other organizations. Get to live in the country and look after a property, which I really enjoy as well and (laughs) uh, all sorts of things, yeah. That's really cool. So I met
0: Dan at The Download, the Australian Christian Lobby uh, Conference back in January. And I was just—we were just laughing about it. But I—I I, I was w- looking at him, and I was talking to him, and I just could not get it out of my head. I'm like, I feel like I've met this guy. And I—I went—I studied with him at a, his brother, sorry, um, <laughs> at Bible yeah. College, and he looks quite similar. So small world, small world.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, my dad was a was a pastor of a Baptist church in Brisbane. Yeah. Hey. Um, yeah. So at, uh, at Windsor Road Baptist for a bunch yeah. of years. So, uh, I, I've never lived in Brisbane, but been up there plenty of times catching up with family, so yeah. It's
0: a good city. It's a good city. Um, Dan, what um, led you to do your PhD in, I guess, ethics, particularly in forgiveness?
1: Yeah, well, it was the kind of questions that um, I found that Christians were wrestling with as they thought about forgiveness was, was really the spur to me, so... None of us can go throughout life, I think, without finding ourselves in those situations where we know we've wronged someone, mm. or we've been wronged by another person, and we're trying to work out how do we how do we kind of move through this? What's it going to look like to 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 get to some kind of relationship that's that's going to be um, better again? Yeah. Um, so, kind of doing wrong and making it right is is that kind of question. Mm. Um, but the kind of question of what forgiveness involves. I, i found that Christians often have pretty big debates about. Um, yeah. The one that really struck me was the way that Christians were debating whether or not you need to wait for the person who's wronged you to repent before mm. you can give them. Like, is forgiveness sort of an unconditional thing that I'm commanded to do regardless of what the other person does? Mm. Or is forgiveness something that I need to be willing to give, but I have to wait till the other person's repented before I can really do it? Yeah. Um, and that's a really important question. Um, and it really matters as well because if you disagree about that with people particularly if you disagree about it in a context where there's a a serious wrong that you're trying to fix up yeah um, it can actually make the situation even worse right um so that was the original spur for me i was interested in thinking about that question then realized there were some other questions around how does forgiveness operate that kind of led me into thinking about how to how to think about the ethics of forgiveness my background's in philosophy so i'm interested in in how concepts and words work and how to make them clearer. Mm. Um, So that was my kind of take on it, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. What did, like, I know you did a full PhD on it, but could you tell us a little bit of what you found in answering that question? Do we need to wait for someone to say sorry to us or do we forgive them beforehand, like um, enlighten us?
1: Well, one of the things that you need to separate out is a little bit the, the difference between the way that we use a word and the actual... Um, Action that we're trying to describe the situation in the world. Mm. So people use the word forgiveness to talk about a whole range of different things. Um, And you just have to sort of be a little bit honest about that. That's kind of what we do with words. We can use them in creative and novel ways. And so the the word forgiveness can cover a whole range of things. It can sometimes cover unconditional-type actions. Sometimes it's a conditional-type thing. Um, the thing that we're trying to describe in the world is how do we move a relationship from a place where there's a wrong that's been done that needs to be confronted through to a situation where we're actually, we're, we're back in some kind of moral um, repair, like we've, we've made that wrong right again. Mm. So. Um, and, and the reality is that kind of process of moving from the wrong back to making it right is a little bit different, a little bit context specific, depending Absolutely. on exactly what was, what was the wrong that was done. Yeah. Um, so a really extreme version, right, is if the, a, a person wrongs you really badly and then dies, right? Um, you can't, but like, you can't wait for them to repent, right? no. like how you, If you're waiting for repentance before you do forgiveness, you're going to be waiting for a long time. Yeah. Um, but what forgiveness might look like there is pretty different as well. It might, it's, you can't actually go to that person and say, "What you did was really wrong, but I forgive you for these reasons," and, yeah. and I want to kind of have a relationship that looks like this now. Like you yeah. just can't do that. So. Forgiveness itself is a different kind of thing in that context. So there's mm. an extreme version yeah, yeah. where um, forgiveness is gonna be a little bit more unconditional, but it's also gonna mean something different. Um, another situation where uh, you know maybe a person has uh, wronged you repeatedly. Um, mm. They've done the same thing over and over and over again. Each time they come to you and they say, look, I'm really sorry, I'm never gonna do that again. And then they do it exactly again. Yeah. Um, in a context like that, um, Waiting for the person to repent is, I think, probably a wise thing before mm. you go on to actually, say, trust them again with all your money. So imagine yeah. it's, it's this kind of person who keeps coming in, asking you for 100 bucks and telling you that they'll give it back to you the next day and they, they don't do that yeah. five months running. The next time they come to you um, and and they've repented, um, forgiving them in that context might not look like doing exactly the same thing again, right? Yeah. Like actually just giving them the 100 bucks again. It might yeah. actually be look, I'm going to, I want you to be in my life. Um, I'm going to work with you till we get through this problem that you've got with the way that you're treating my money, but yeah. I'm not going to give you 100 bucks again. Um, so forgiveness is going to be context specific. It's going to be what does a good relationship look like, mm. a relationship that's um, helping us both to move from the place where we've wronged each other through to a place where we're actually able to treat each other with respect um, as people that are responsible before God. Um, so yeah. that's, maybe that's a kind of unsatisfying answer because it's not <laughs> a sort of white set of problems. Um, there are there are principles, and we can talk more about that. But that's that's my basic kind of. Hey, it depends a little bit.
0: Yeah, yeah I guess it would have to be definitely contextual. Um.
1: <laughs> here's, here's one thing that is helpful though sometimes to think about. Yeah. I reckon there's a virtue of forgivingness, So the kind of willingness to be to forgive someone, mm. and that's something that I think Christians are commanded to have and to cultivate in ourselves to be ready to forgive. Yeah. Um, that's slightly different from the actual action of forgiveness like that that thing actually is a bit more context specific it takes you have to think about what's going on in the moment and what it means to to make this relationship right again yep. that act of forgiveness that's that's one thing but the virtue of forgivingness being ready to forgive hmm. that's something I think we're all supposed to have and, and to keep growing in yeah
0: yeah okay can I can I probe a bit with um, um, this might tease out some more of what you've written and, and thought about? But with like God's grace, for instance, I I I, I think we all in certain ways we probably messed up in similar ways multiple times, keep coming back, and we're like, oh, I'm so sorry, God. Like, and we would expect that uh, from our Bible that He would forgive us. Is there kind of a
1: parallel between that and what we do? Yeah, I think that's a really important place. To think about, like what, what are the parallels between God's forgiveness of us and how we forgive others? Mm. Jesus draws some really strong parallels there, doesn't he? So in, when he teaches us to pray the Lord's Prayer, he says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of parallel being drawn when Jesus tells the parable about um about the servant of the king who owes the king this massive debt mm. and the king gives him the debt and then the servant goes away and he's owed a small debt by his friend and then he has his friend thrown into debtor's prison because he can't pay it back. There's a, a parallel that Jesus is drawing there between yeah. God's forgiveness and our treatment of others. So that that should matter to us. Yeah. Um, but it is also interesting to think about whether God forgives people without repentance um, so when, when, people, when the apostles proclaim the gospel to people in the book of Acts, mm. they say, repent and believe and be baptised. Um, these, these are the kind of things that you to do. So there's a, there's a changing, a, a recognition that what you've done is wrong mm. that proceeds coming back into a relationship. Yeah. Um, now, if you're like me and you're a bit of a Calvinist, um, <laughs> you don't believe that people can repent and come back to God unless God has already acted Towards them to change their hearts. Yeah. So you know, I, I would argue that no one comes out with repentance towards God without God also first reaching out to them and making it possible for them to change. Right? Yeah. Um, so does that mean that God has kind of already forgiven them by giving them the grace that enables them to repent so that He can then respond to their repentance? And <laughs> well, yes, kind of. Yeah. I, I don't know. What, what we're starting to do then is, is, like I said, that word forgiveness can start to cover. A whole bunch of territory um, yeah absolutely so what i'd want to say is that god is gracious and merciful towards people he makes it so that uh, we can become aware of our sins so that we can then repent and then mm. he recognises our repentance and the, the probably the thing that we want to call forgiveness is that moment where our repentance is met by god's um removing the punishment from us and drawing us back into relationship yeah that clearly involves repentance doesn't it so yeah one way to think about it is maybe to say there's a kind of a paradigmatic example, like a, a, a version of forgiveness that's the kind of classic version, mm. and that's one that looks like um, someone recognising that what they've done is wrong, admitting it, and then the person that they've wronged choosing not to hold that against them and to treat them instead with with kindness and favour. That's yeah. the kind of classic example. Yeah. But there are other kinds of things that sort of look a bit like forgiveness that don't necessarily involve all those parts.
0: Yeah, yeah. OK, and the difference between that... And kind of if someone was, for instance, asking for $100 each time, is that they actually repented, that they actually said sorry
1: and yeah.
0: sought forgiveness in that sense.
1: Well, Jesus also talks about the person, the brother who comes to you and, and says how many times, and you know, Peter says to you, how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother? And is it seven times? Like, would it be that many? And Jesus goes, no, no, it's like 70 times seven. It's yeah. like you know, as many as you can imagine. Um, so... So clearly for us as well, this, uh, this virtue of forgivingness, being ready to forgive your brother, it doesn't matter how many times he rips you off for 100 bucks. If he comes back and says, look, I'm really sorry, um, you are to forgive them at that point. Whether or not you're supposed to treat them exactly the same yeah. as you did before, yeah. give them another 100 bucks That's the kind of question that I'm saying, yeah. hey, forgive me. I a bit different in this situation, yeah. but that virtue of being ready to forgive—I so mm-hmm. have the hand open. That's something that we're commanded to do, and that's that's what the way that God treats us it doesn't matter how many times we fall in that hole. Mm. to on God—he's always—he's always ready to forgive us when we come back. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's good. No, I like that. Um, I want to maybe try and switch gears a little bit, um, but I, I'm curious because <clears throat> I hear when talking about kind of ethics and morality and things like that, that there's kind of subjective truth, there's like relative truth, and then there's like absolute truth. And um, I was wondering if you could maybe uh, give us a little bit of an idea of what each of them are, because there's a lot of isms there, um, but it is some words in that kind of community that I, I hear a lot.
1: So subjective truth, objective truth, and kind of relative truth. Is that yeah. right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, those are important things, and particularly when we're thinking about um, ethics and morals, right? So one of the debates that we often have when we're talking about morality and and what is right and wrong is whether those things are based on something that's kind of independent of my opinion or whether it's just sort of a kind of preference that I have, Mm. sort of a objective thing. Or maybe relative is kind of saying, well, it's, it changes from context to context mm. according to certain kinds of rules. That, that's the general idea. Right? So let me let me kind of flesh that out. Yeah. If we're talking about objective morality, by and large, what we're saying is that there's a right and wrong that's independent of what just is my choice or is the cultural norm in my in my society. So yeah, um, it's it's kind of fixed out there. It's like a law of nature. It's the same kind of thing as gravity, right? It's just a kind of yeah. reality of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when we say a truth might be subjective or a, or a moral principle might be subjective, we're talking about something that is more to do with my take on the world. Um, so behind me is this uh, very interesting picture of King Henry, um, yeah. King Henry VIII. Uh, and and you could look at that picture and you could say, well, I, I really think that's a great work of art. Um, and... At that moment, what are you doing? Is it is that an objective claim or is it a subjective claim? A, su- a subjective claim would be saying, I think this thing is beautiful and what it means for it to be beautiful is that it kind of causes me to feel certain ways or that I prefer this style of art as yeah. opposed to another kind of style of art. That's a subjective kind of yeah. um, Sometimes it's good that you separated out kind of relative truth from the other two because sometimes we say relative truth is just the same as subjective truth. But there is yeah. a bit of a difference. Um to say that something is kind of a, a truth is relative is not just to say that it's kind of my preference or my kind of take on the world. Mm. It's more to say that it's connected to a particular context. Yeah, so yeah. it's true within this sphere of things, but it might yeah. not be true everywhere for all time. So yeah. it is it is true that in Western cultures, Santa Claus wears a red suit. Um, but it's potentially the case you know, in another culture or in another time of history that he wore a green suit, for example. And so yeah. the truth that Santa Claus wears a red suit is true. And it's not just my opinion that that's true. It's kind of true for everyone who's a... <laughs> you know, ...watches Coca-Cola ads. But it's kind of relatively <laughs> true. It's not true in all times and all places necessarily.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's cool. Um, I thought that would be helpful because my... And it's a huge question, but my question is because I... I is is morality subjective? Like, is right and wrong subjective? Because I, like, is it really just up to your opinion? Because, And why I ask is because I, I see in kind of particularly our culture, like, a, like Australian culture, uh, Western culture, like particularly in America, um, that it's kind of just up to you. Um, you decide what's right and wrong. It's kind of the you do you into each their own, that type of, of thing, You can't tell each other what to do. Um, but it seems that like this is a really important question to ask of if that's true, because if it's not, um, and there actually are absolute kind of moral claims or moral kind of uh, laws where um, it doesn't matter if you don't believe in them or not, they're still there and it could create some sort of harm. And I, I thought of this example, I've used it in a sermon or two so far, but it's kind of like you can... This is like um, uh, like gravity. I think we were talking about that before. Um, like you could you could believe all the all you want in your mind that gravity doesn't exist, and you go to the side of a cliff, and you can kind of just keep walking, and then you're just going to stay level with the cliff. You're not going to fall, but you'll yeah. hit an actual absolute reality um, where gravity. Is, is a thing and you'll fall you'll probably hurt yourself you might die um, that type of thing so in a similar way um, I wonder like it's a good question to ask if morality is just up to your opinion because if it's not and there actually are rules like the cliff then you don't want to walk off the
1: edge thinking if does that make sense? <laughs> so- yeah, absolutely yeah that's such an important set of questions and like actually ultimately I think some of the most important questions. Like yeah. we don't often ask them that way of ourselves. Like um, you're a bit of a weirdo if you sit around thinking, oh, like, you know, what is objectively true or subjectively true in this life. <laughs> But yeah. um, whenever we are making important life decisions, we're actually trying to think about how do I live a life that's that's going to be flourishing, that's going to be a blessing to the people around me, going to be good for myself. Mm. Um, when I'm asking myself those questions. I'm also asking, how do I know that and what, are, what is my reasoning and my facts and the data based on? Like, is mm-hmm. it just based on what I feel in the moment or is it based on something out there like the law of gravity and, and how do I know all of that? So these are yep. really important questions. Um, yeah, the, the answers are interesting, maybe a little bit more complicated than you might think. Um, <laughs> I can so, imagine it would be. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I want to say that for, for Christians... Um, we have a kind of bedrock set of claims that our morality is based on something objective. It's not just based on my set of feelings. Um, yeah. And and one of the reasons for that, the the reason that I actually really, I found kind of compelling when it first when it was first shown to me, is is even just implicit in the way that we talk about the gospel, what it means to the message of Jesus. Mm. Um, I, I mentioned before the kind of the, the way the apostles share the message about Jesus in the book of Acts. And they'll say something like this, you know, repent um, and then do this, kind of change your life um, and believe in Jesus. Yeah. And, and that, that's a moral message, right? It's like, it's, this is a set of moral implications about what you should do. You should stop doing a thing that you were doing. Yeah. Um, and you should start doing this other kind of thing. But the reason that they would make that set of claims for people is based on an objective set of facts that happened in history. So if you look at, say, Acts chapter 2, where Peter is preaching to this large crowd and the end of his sermon is um, they actually the crowd actually asked him, what should we do? And he says this, you should repent and believe and be yeah. baptised. Um, but his, his reasoning up to that point has been that Jesus Christ was a man who was accredited to you through these amazing works that he did and then he was put to death on a cross and then God raised him from the dead again and now he's seated at God's right hand in this position of power. So yeah. what he does is he tells them a bunch of facts about the world. Yeah. Now, these things are literally true. They actually happened. He says to them, you were witnesses to this. You saw these things. Yeah. So if you're thinking about what's going on there, he's, what he's saying is here's some objective truths, these things that happened that yeah. you saw, and here's some moral implications that follow from those objective truths yeah. you should remember and believe. So... For Christians, that kind of basic moral reasoning is right at the bedrock of the way that we think. Mm. Um, God has established some facts about the world, and these facts have moral implications. They lead to things that we should do. Um, like I say, you see that most clearly in the way that the apostles preach about the resurrection. Yeah. Um, but the the very structure of creation itself, um, for Christians, according to the and I think we get this from the Bible has its own kind of set of moral implications. So yep. the fact that God has created a world mm. creates this set of moral relationships between us as his creatures and him. Yeah. So there's a fact God created, there's a moral implication we are meant to live in a relationship with him where we give him honor and 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 listen to his word. So yep. these kinds of things flow. So so there's that kind of objective reality to, to the way that Christians think about morality. Yeah. Having said that, this is where I want to say it gets a little bit complicated. That's not to say that there isn't such a thing as kind of subjective truth or subjective morality. Yeah. There are certain kinds of things which are true for me that are not true for you, Matt. Right? <laughs> um, there are. There are. There, when it comes down to discussing, you know, whether I like this particular painting or that particular kind of painting, there, there will be valid differences of opinion yeah. between. And that might even extend into certain kinds of moral implications. Not, not yeah, that there's. Okay. A, of a different right or wrong for me or you but there's there's a set of facts about the world and the way that God has made it and even the way that he's made you or me that we might actually have different things that we do on the basis of that from each other yeah um, and that probably also extends to thinking about relative truth and relative morality in a very limited sense yeah in that I think you know God has in his providence caused different cultures to come into the world and so is it like he's a weird example but if you go to church in Fiji Wow, I just got plunged into the dark here. <laughs> the light, lights are on timers in this building. Oh, no. Um, if you go to church in Fiji, uh, if you're a man, uh, the proper wear, the proper dress code to go to a church in Fiji is to wear a thing called a sulu, which looks like a business skirt if you're a man from Australia, right? It yeah. looks, you know, it's usually lovely kind of black suit material, but it looks like the kind of thing that a woman would wear to work. Yeah. Um, So if you don't wear that to church, I think you will actually be doing something kind of morally wrong. You'll actually be doing something that's offensive to the group of people that you're going to church with by not obeying what is a kind of cultural norm for them. Um, And not obeying it will be the wrong thing to do. It will be kind of rude and inhospitable. Um, and so you're transgressing some kind of rule there. Yeah. But, the, but the, whether you should wear sulus or not or jeans or whatever to church mm. is not itself like an absolute moral law. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a cultural, it's a kind of relative morality that's based yeah. on a deeper objective morality, which is that you should seek to love your neighbours and be respectful. Right? So yeah. there are kinds of relative morals that depend on these deeper objective truths.
0: How would you? I guess my next question then would be, as I know it's a big question, so just do your best with the time we've got. But how would you work out then, kind of the, the scaffolding of the absolutes to work out those situations? For instance, I don't know. Going to church naked would probably not be the greatest thing in all contexts at all times. But and there's probably some guiding principles there as to why that's not a horrible example. But (laughs) hopefully you get my idea. That's a
1: good one. Um, And I think this is one of the things that as Christians we need to recognise. And it's you might you might think I'm kind of maybe even a raging heretic for saying this, but, but there's a there actually I think is a gap between the the universal true moral principles and reality that God gives us in the Bible and the specific actions that we need to take in any given moment, right? Yeah. There's, there's always this kind of little bit of a gap where we've got to work out how is it that this thing applies right here and right now. Mm. Um, God, God tells me that I need to love my neighbour, that church should be conducted in an orderly fashion. Does that mean I can wear jeans to church? Um a, the Bible doesn't quite tell me exactly the answer to that. It gives yeah. me everything I need to work out the answer I would say. Yeah. it doesn't tell me exactly. Um, so yeah. how do you how do you kind of bridge that gap? How does the Bible give us the mind of Christ so mm-hmm. that we can actually think ethically and morally about these things? Yeah, well, I would say there's there's kind of four different things that the Bible gives us um, to work from. yeah. So here we go. I'm about to kind of download some ethics at here. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> here are the, here are, I would say here are four foundations of ethical reasoning in the Bible. The first is, is creation. Um, God actually reveals to us um, the way that he's created the world and the purpose of the creation that he's made for us um, and the kinds of order that he's put into it. And you get a lot of that, obviously, in the book of Genesis at the start, but it's, it's woven right throughout the Bible. Um, the book of Proverbs is full of this. Um, So famously in the book of Proverbs, it'll say, you know, go to the ant, you sluggard, and watch the way that the (laughs) ant runs... You know, piles up stuff so that when winter comes he doesn't starve yeah. so here's, here's something that you should do if you're a lazy sluggard out there at Wyndham Baptist Church um, <laughs> pay attention to what ants do uh, and you should realise by looking at the creation that God has made that being a lazy bum is not a good way to live right like yeah. so, you know, so you know stop procrastinating on that essay you've got to write go and do it um, so here's, here's one kind of foundation of ethical reasoning in the Bible God tells us creation tells us what he made it for and mm. um, some of the orders that he's put into it. And as a kind of subset of that, we learn about humanity. Humanity is part of the creation. Um, We learn what we were made for. Mm. Uh, We learn some of the order that God has put into our lives, the way that men and women and families are meant to kind of relate and serve and love each other and Mm. all these kinds of things um, we learn. So that's a foundation of ethical reason, creation. Here's another one. The second one is God's character. God reveals what he's like. Um, through the way that he deals with the people of Israel, mm. um, the way that he deals with us in Jesus. Um, uh, we learn that God is a God of love. We learn that he's slow to anger, um, but he's the God who does justice.
0: Mm. Um,
1: all these kinds of things that we can say about God. So the second one is God's character. Yep. Um, the third one is God's commands. Um, there are lots of places in the Bible where God just says, do this and don't do that. Uh, so the Ten Commandments, really famously. Yep. Um, and you can think about um, God's commands as kind of like a quick start guide um, for people who are learning to think ethically about the way that God wants them to live. Yeah. Um, so uh, so thinking about the creation, thinking about God's character, these things are, are shaping our minds, helping us to know what to do in given situations. But there are times where actually you just need someone to say, do this, right? Yeah. Like, here's a quick start guide, get on with it. Yeah. Um, and, and God gives us those things as well. But as we read his commands... We're also learning more about his character. We're learning more about our purpose. We're kind of also learning the ways that we can extrapolate from a particular command into other kinds of things. Mm. Um, So, for example, um, God gives us the command very clearly, do not murder um, in Mm. the Ten Commandments in in Exodus chapter 20. Now, Christians have rightly extrapolated from that command to do not permit or or commit abortions, right? Now, um, mm. is, is something that the Bible doesn't talk about directly, yeah. but seems to be a really straightforward extrapolation of the command not to murder. Yeah, it's backed yes. by a whole bunch of other kinds of things as well. So that's the third one, God's commands. Yep. fourth one is the future. Um, in order to make good ethical decisions, you actually have to know what you're living for, where the world is going, what I'm hoping for in this life, and um, what kinds of things um, should I be aiming for. And God has told us the future that he's promised to us and where mm. he's taking the world towards. And so the fourth kind of foundation of ethical reasoning in the Bible is the future. Yeah. Cool. Now, to make all of those things hold together, um, they all fit together around Jesus. So Jesus is the center of ethics in the Bible. Jesus is the one who actually reveals to us, ultimately God, what God's creation is about, what He made it for. Um, uh, he he kind of he takes all of those things we learn from Genesis, and then he kind of fills them in with even more detail. Yeah. And, and simply by the fact of his resurrection. Jesus shows us that God hasn't given up on his creation. He still mm. likes the created world that he'd made because he, God takes Jesus' physical body and he makes it alive again. Yeah, um, So that's God's great big yes to this creation that he's made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Jesus reveals to us God's real character. Um, in, in, if Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So as mm. you look at the way that Jesus cares for the people around him, his justice, his compassion, you're seeing what God's character is like. Um, Jesus interprets for us God's commands. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sits down and he says, you've heard it was said to you, but now I say to you. And he actually takes lots of those kind of things from the law and he actually um, reinterprets them for us so that we understand what's at the heart of them.
0: Yeah, it's Uh, good. Jesus
1: shows us what God's real future looks like. It's it's actually a Jesus-shaped future Mm. where we all come into a relationship with God through Christ um, and where Jesus reigns over all things. Yep. So Jesus is at the heart of all that ethical reasoning in the Bible. Um, now, I've rabbited on for ages there, but that, I would say those are the things. And That's as you really learn good. more about all of those four things, if you want to upgrade your knowledge yep. to become like an ethical ninja, um, <laughs> the way that you do that is you learn more about the doctrine of God's creation, you learn more about God's character, you learn more about his commands, you learn more yeah. about the finger, you learn more about how all of those things hold together in Jesus. And as you learn more about all of those things... You start to know, how do I move across that gap from what I see in the Bible into what I need to do in this moment right now? I bring all of those things to bear on that particular moment. Yeah,
0: yeah that's really good. That's awesome. So you kind of get your own, by doing those things, by reading that and um, kind of diving into it, you get your scaffolding, you get your kind of, your um, yeah, your foundations of how to work out in the kind of what might be a bit of a grey area of like okay i know these things from the bible i know these things from the character of god i know these things from jesus so that kind of helps me work out something to try and do the best i can whereas i find that many many people don't do that they kind of go oh i know a tiny bit or that they'll they'll only focus on one um or and then they'll kind of go this just kind of feels right
1: yeah yeah, that's that's spot on, Matt. I think I think the reality for most of us actually is that we're just kind of gutting it out. I like oh, this kind of feels right for me in this moment, so I'm going to do that. If we think a little bit more, or we get pushed more about it, we might actually express that by saying, um, yeah, this this uh, like I'm doing what uh, feels best for me. So we kind of base our thinking about morality on a kind of set of feelings. Mm. Feelings are actually important. They are often a kind of a way that we measure. The relationships that we're in and are they going well? Yeah. But but most of us know also that feelings can lie, right? Like they're, yeah. they're not actually a particularly reliable guide. Mm. So we need something a little bit beyond our feelings that's gonna be that we can pin our morality onto. Now if you're in the world around us, um most uh, most serious people who think about ethics recognize that. So there are very few like hardcore relativists, even who aren't Christians in moral yeah. theory, right? most moral theorists, even if they're not Christians, believe in something kind of like an objective basis for morality. It might, it might not be something like God's creation, but it might be in kind of universal human respect. Or, yeah. um, you know, so, so there, there are basically kind of three or four main moral theories that are around in the world around us. Yeah. Um, the, one of the most common ones is just kind of thinking about rights. So the best course of action, what I should do now is one that respects the rights of the people around me and how do we work out what those rights are well most simply probably we work out what kinds of ways of treating people would we want to be universal rules so like if uh it's it's a little bit the sort of jesus do unto others as you would have done unto you kind of thing yeah, like, yeah. um so a, a person has a right to be kind of treated equally to everyone else that's really common you hear that in our society yeah all a sure time.
0: it's like the a second most common way Yeah, yeah, yeah
1: that's right second most common but recognize there's a kind of objective reality to that it's not just you do whatever you want to do Mm. you do this kind of thing that's based on the rights of the people around yeah second really common way is thinking about results so this is what we might call utilitarianism the best thing to do is the thing that brings about the best results for the largest number of people so that Mm. is it maybe it makes the largest number of people happy or it satisfies their kind of largest number of preferences or something like that yeah so you kind of have this results-based thinking. The third really common one is a kind of values-based thing. So um, what is good for individuals and communities is to is to have certain kinds of values in them. So the value of kind of um, care or nurture for the people around us. You see this in kind of school value statements, right? We're going to be a school that has respect, care, honesty, tolerance, yep. diversity. Now, what you were picking up on a moment ago is really interesting. Each of those has some truth to it, but it only picks up on one thing. It kind of makes one thing the basis for how we think about all of ethics. Yeah. Um, each one of these things has something in it that actually responds to the way that God has has shown us ethics in the Bible. So rights are kind of based on the idea of um, the way that God has made the world, yeah. um, that we, we all have human dignity, that we should all be treated in a certain kind of way. And their their um, results are based on this idea that there is a future that we're moving towards. Yeah. Um, um, values are based on this idea that God has a character and a certain kind of settled, settled pattern of action that we should we should emulate. But what it, what they do poorly is they separate out God from all of these things and they try to base all of ethics on one idea. Mm. Um, what Christians have, I think, really wonderfully, is actually something that draws in all of these different parts of the way that God has made us and yeah. acted towards us, holds them all together in a unity around Jesus. Mm. Um, and actually gives us a really robust framework for thinking about morality because of that
0: yeah absolutely and i, I think as well as there's in uh, at least i think those three that you just kind of named there's there's potential basically if it's like there's a collective kind of agreement on what is valued and what is right and wrong that and if it's down to the collective people, then that could definitely change over time.
1: So it's kind of not oh, absolutely.
0: objective in a way. Uh, like it is, yeah, but not. Yeah. Each,
1: each one of those things that I laid out has real problems with it if it gets pushed too far. Yeah. So like with rights, um, rights language never really gets us beyond bare minimums. Like no one has a right to be loved. Um, and yet we all think that loving others is a really virtuous thing to do, right? Yeah. So rights language only ever gets you really, really basic things. Mm so it doesn't seem to cover enough results language can end up being really dark actually res- results thinking so the classic example is the sort of in philosophy it's called the trolley problem um uh, and i can tell you the whole story of that but it's basically the idea so to save like five sick people should i be allowed to kill one healthy person and kind of harvest their organs right if i do that I'm gonna have five new healthy people. That's more people in the world who are living good, happy lives. Only one person has to die. Hmm. But that still seems wrong, right? Like killing one healthy person to save five, six people seems not right and yet the results kind of thinking seems to get you in that direction. So yeah, absolutely. I end up justifying terrible things. And like <laughs> you say, that sort of values language very easily becomes unstuck from anything other than just kind of group think, thinking. Yeah, absolutely. So it's possible to have a value statement I, I, either that no one actually does anything about, like classic school value statements where they don't actually <laughs> map onto reality at all, or where the value statements are really disconnected from what is re- a, a good way to live. They're just yeah. kind of... Random stuff that people dragged up in a boardroom. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's almost like some people, at least sometimes, independent of God, they're kind of picking up on certain values that are woven into um, God's creation, which is which is really cool. But then other times it can it can change. People's opinions can kind of morph and sin can take kind of its its way in a way.
1: Yeah. What you're saying is really important and worth stopping and thinking about for a moment, which is that as, as Christians, we actually think that all morality flows from God, right? Like that it flows mm. out of the way that God is and the way that he's made the world. And so when people who aren't Christian pick up on morality and moral behavior, they are really seeing something out there in the world. Yeah. In, in theology, we call this common grace, that mm. God's grace is is so extensive that it's it's shown to people who aren't even Christian and it enables them to live in ways that are often good. Yeah. Um, there's no good that isn't God's good. There's no truth that isn't God's truth. Yeah, so, absolutely. in as much as people are able to live good lives and know true things about the world, they're participating to some extent in the way that God has made them, and that gives us a point of contact as Christians. Mm. Um, so, in like I say, in all of those kind of non-Christian moral theories, there's often a gap or a way that it kind of falls apart, um, and that, for us as Christians, is, can sometimes be an opportunity to kind of say, Hey, look. You're searching for something that's really good here and, and you're on you're on the right track. You're kind of getting somewhere. Mm. But it keeps falling apart. And and maybe maybe if you look at it this way, maybe it'll hold together a little bit better. Um, and that becomes a kind of a pol- an apologetic for us, a way yeah. of kind of actually showing the way that the gospel is a satisfying answer to some of those questions that we have as humans
0: yeah yeah it's so good I kind of a little bit on that note I I wanted to ask the question and this is another hard question um but how do we as Christians because we've talked about a lot so far about kind of where our moral kind of basis our compass comes from of how to navigate through life of of what God's given us in his character and creation and so on and so forth Um, But how do you... So we've kind of got our own absolute truth in a way. We've got something to stand on, and that's how we navigate. Uh, We've got that foundation, but if we're talking to someone who doesn't have that same foundation about morality or about what's right and wrong, where maybe they have a bit more of a um, subjective type of view on on morality where it is, it's kind of like, actually, it's just my opinion, I'm just living how I want to... How do you how do you have a conversation there? Like a very contextual, I get it, but it's kind of like they're two different worlds in a way, um, and they're they're trying yeah. to interact, but they don't have the same common ground. Um, so I wondered if you had any yeah. kind of advice there.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of different things to think about there. One one is, say say for example, it's just two two of us kind of sitting down to have a conversation about an issue, kind of like we're doing. Mm. Um, what, what we're going to do, I think, initially, is is probably try to to listen as well as we can to each other, if this is a good conversation, right? So
0: yeah.
1: um, I'm going to try to ask you some questions, you're going to ask me questions, and we're going to each take our turn to try and set out as much as we can, what's this moral issue that we're thinking about? Um, how do we think, what, what, do you, what do we think the answer is? Mm. And, then, and then get into the level of the why. Why do we think this is the right answer to this yeah. particular question? And as we do that, we will recognize that there are our answers are really different. And probably the reason for diving into the why level questions is that'll help us to understand why they're different. Yeah. Um and, and hopefully what we'll find there is some points of common overlap, right? Yeah. So um if I'm talking to someone who's thinking about uh, why we should um you know we should we should promote better housing affordability in Australia, right? And this other person doesn't recognise anything to do with God, but they recognise actually something about the need for humans to have housing because it's part of our sense of dignity. Like everyone deserves, they have a right to, to affordable housing um, because everyone deserves to be treated with dignity and to not have a house is to kind of um, suffer a terrible indignity. Um, And so as we go back into the kind of why-level stuff there, we discover we've got a commonality. I also think that humans deserve to be treated with dignity Mm. and so do you. And in fact, we might end up at a a similar place in terms of the policy that we want to adopt, but the why question will lead me into thinking a little bit about what it means for humans to be in a relationship with God, Um, whereas my friend who might be kind of, you know, working from a... Uh, kind of a, uh, a rights-based moral theory. Mm. We'll kind of say, well, it's just based on kind of human rationality. Yeah. And then yeah. we'll ask some questions of each other at that level. He'll look at me and he'll be very sceptical. He'll be like, why do you believe that humans are created in the image of God? That seems like a wild, weird assumption to make. So, <laughs> um, and I'll...
0: Oh, no. Uh, okay. <laughs> Hopefully it'll come back soon. he's still there
1: to understand a lot more about what shapes my thinking as a Christian um I'll get to understand more of his uh and hopefully at some point there we'll be able to actually uh, you know I'd love to win him to my way of thinking yeah um and I have to be open to the possibility he might win me to his. Yeah, yeah absolutely. have a good conversation about it. So we'll try and find those points of commonality by going back through our why questions together. Um, I want to kind of say something else though, because there are lots of times where we, we don't get anywhere, where we just discover that we just think really differently about this. What do I do now? So um, maybe I'm in a, a club at school or at university um, and we're dedicated to some particular kind of good thing that we want to do at our school. We want to run you know, breakfasts for disadvantaged people down the street or something like that. And yeah. half the people in our club are doing that because they, um, I don't know, they're just ethical people or something, they have their own theory, maybe they think this will bring about more happiness in the world. The other half are doing it because they're Christians and we, we just can't actually persuade each other to change our minds. Yeah, um, I would say that in that kind of example, it's still a good thing to do, right? Like, so there's yeah. there's a basic thing that, there's, there's the space for cooperation here. Um, yeah. cooperation is a good way to kind of live out our christian ethics even with people who might have similar um, actions that they will take on the basis of different reasons Mm. but cooperation is one of i've got four things for you cooperation is one of four different ways that christians can relate to the world around them cooperation is the first one the kind of most basic one and it's one that you see all the time in the bible where christians just cooperate with non-christians because we all live in god's world and he's given us common grace second one is subversion right so sometimes Christians have to work with people who see the world really differently from them, um, and Christians just get alongside, they keep doing what they do as Christians, but they, they, they're they clearly doing it for other reasons, and occasionally they do things that other people just won't do, right? Um, so the forgiveness is a great example of this, right? So maybe you're in a club or something like that, and there's this massive conflict that breaks out over some kind of decision that you're trying to make. Um, and then all the Christians in that club, they just start kind of being really gracious and humble to the people around them. Mm. Um, and what they're doing is they're kind of acting in this sort of weird subversive way that's really attractive. And the people around them notice it and they think, "Oh, there's something going on here," and they start to kind of think, "Oh, what, I, I want to investigate that more." So the second way that Christians relate to the to the world around them is they they just they're subversively good. Yeah. Um, sometimes. Um, the third one, and this is where it gets more tricky, is where occasionally the stuff that's happening in the culture or the world around us is just so far out of line with what God wants that we have to call it out, that we just have to stand up and expose the deeds of darkness, as the Bible says. Yeah. Now, sometimes in our really polarized culture at the moment, Christians wanna just go straight there, right? Like, I'm just gonna be calling (laughs) out people left, right, and center, and I'm gonna be on my socials, and I'm just gonna be denouncing everyone around me. before you, get, before you get ready to do that, remember that cooperation and the subversion are the more common forms of Christian engagement. Yeah. But there are times and places, and you might be in one, where you have to just call it out. That's the wrong thing to do. I'm just going to say loudly that it's the wrong thing to do. Yeah. Um, but then there's an even more extreme one, which is separation, which is where Christians say, what you're doing is so wrong, not only do I have to call it out, but I can have nothing to do with you anymore. Um, mm. so, um, you know, Maybe that means I need to go and form another club it means that I have to break a friendship with someone because of what they're doing. In the most extreme versions of that, Christians say, well, I might even have to be willing to die. I might have to be willing to separate myself so thoroughly from this society um, that I'll be martyred. I'll be put to death for for, for what I'm saying. Mm. Um, and in extreme cases, that's what Christians will need to do.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but again, like with the, those other four things, all of these four things you've got a range of possibilities, right? So the choices for Christians aren't just between cooperation and martyrdom. Yeah. <laughs> um, you've got the option of kind of subversion, you've got the option of exposure. Yeah. Um, you, you, as a Christian, you've got to think through, what, what are my options here? What's going to be the most successful way that I can actually help people to see Jesus um, in this situation?
0: Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Dan. That's been really, really cool um it's gotten me thinking it's exactly what i was hoping out of this podcast um i'm gonna give the guys online and in person a little bit of time just to get up around and put in some of the questions for Q the A. so make sure you put them in if you uh, have some questions for dan um but dan thank you so much that was that was so good
1: so welcome yeah really fun